Father, we come before you this morning, and the song reminds us that we are in a daily battle to choose one way or another. Uh, there is our will, there's the way of the world, there's the way of our flesh, there's the way of our own um, desires, and then there's your will and your way, your way which is righteous, pure, and holy. It's a reminder, Father, that we face that choice almost every second of our waking lives. And so help us um, as we consider the text that's before us today, as we consider our weeks, that the week that is before us, that when we engage in a battle, when we face a conflict, that we will recognize a choice that we have to make, and we will choose you. We will choose your way. We will choose your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. I take your Bibles and turn in them to the book of James as... We uh, have been sitting in this book for a little while. Uh, we'll take a break uh, over a couple Sundays around Easter and uh, then come back and finish it before we head into the summer. But uh, we're um, at the end of chapter 3 right now, and I want to read a, a section of Scripture which I believe is a unit, and uh, it does go together, and it's helpful to read the whole thing even though we're only going to focus on, in particular, uh, verses, uh, of verses 1 to 6 of chapter 4. But I want to start at verse 13 of chapter 3. It sets before us two ways of wisdom. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. It's a great text that we're in, and as I said, I believe it's a unit. The end of chapter 3 describes for us two different types of wisdom. Chapter 4 um, describes uh, a, a situation in which the wisdom of the world seems to be leaking out into 
those who are professing faith in Jesus Christ and impacting their relationships with the church. And then verses 7 to 10 speak about our response of repentance and asking God to come and cleanse our hearts and to cleanse our hands and to set us back on the path of seeking wisdom from above in our lives. One preacher that I read this past week said this, The compass we use determines the road that we choose. And the road that we choose determines the destination that we reach. And as I reflected on that in relation to this text, I thought, or the wisdom that we subscribe to determines the actions that we live by. And the actions that we live by will determine the fruit of our lives. And so James is working this out now with the churches that he's writing to. As he said in another place, it's very easy for us to be hearers of the word. That's part of the culture we live in. We are inundated with opportunities to hear things. But James is concerned is not only that we be hearers of the word, but that we be doers of the word. That we let the words that we hear settle in our minds and then drop down into our hearts and, and shape our wills so that um, what we hear determines who we are and how we think and how we behave. If we are just a hearer of the word only and not a doer of the word, we can find ourselves in trouble. I was thinking of this in relation to physical ailments or difficulties that we have. We can often um, have a number of symptoms in our body and for a, a period of time just ignore them and say, well, they're not really there. They don't really matter. Uh, there's nothing really going on in my life. But finally, we or somebody convinces us, you know, you better go and see the doctor. And so we do. And she says to us, you know, you're experiencing such and such in your body, correct? And we say, yeah. And she says, well, let me tell you what causes those things. And then, to be sure, we're going to order a, a few tests that when I get back, I'll call you into my office. And that'll enable us to make an accurate diagnosis. And then we'll be able to talk about a prognosis with you and, and hopefully a remedy to come. We live in a world, thankfully, in North America, we have access to incredible doctors who know our bodies and know them well and, and can help uh, figure out what's going on in our bodies. What I don't think we think of too often is those who are physicians of the soul. Those who understand what's going on inside of us, that what makes us tick. And James here is a master physician of the soul. He understands the heart. He understands soulishness. He understands things that go beyond the physical realities of our body. And so what he's beginning to address as he comes to them is he's beginning to address their souls. And the peace and the gentleness and the reasonableness that he talked about in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3 seems to have dissipated. And the people that he's writing to, at least some amongst them, are being lured away. They're listening to wisdom from below. And they're, they're, they're not seeking help for it. And so James, as a spiritual doctor, begins to address the situation. And as I walk into Dr. James's office... Dr. James says to me, good to see you, Paul. I understand that you've been having trouble lately with relationships, that you're fighting and quarreling all the time. Well, wars, they're severe. It's a continuing state of hostility towards others. Fights are, are more squirmishes or things that break out from time to time, flare-ups that happen in our relationships. The fascinating thing here is, as James is talking, and I'm not sure whether it's a bold confession on my part to him, or whether it's an educated guess on his part, but he says, 
these are happening among you, Paul. These wars and relationships, they're happening among you. And it's like if he says, if you live according to the wisdom of the world, no relationship can be isolated from the poison of that wisdom. It will infect all your relationships, even your relationships with your Christian brothers and sisters. Even your relationships with people that you go to church with and that you worship with and that you serve alongside of it. And so at first thought we might say, well, not here at PFBC. There's not a chance there's any of this kind of stuff that goes on amongst the people of God here. Well, it does from time to time. And we may have quarrels and fights that are happening amongst us even now as we are here as a people of God. There are a time to time people that avoid each other. They see each other coming and they take a different exit from the church. There are people that haven't talked to other people for months and some even for years. There are some people who sit in different parts of the audience or come to different services just so that there's not that uncomfortable moment when they cross paths with somebody that they have fought with or that they're quarreling with. Oh, we don't always see it. But we should realize that if it's true of another church, it's possible even in our church here at PFBC. And if we don't see it now, just wait a couple months and we'll see it. You see, what, what, what James is asking us, and I think we have to wrestle through, is are we capable of following wisdom that is from below in our relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ? Are we capable of behaving in an earthly, unspiritual, even demonic way towards one another? How else do you understand that little two words, among you? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you, brothers and sisters? And so the first place, I think, to begin uh, to deal with spiritual issues that we have in our lives is to at finally, at some point, recognize I'm sick. Something's not right, and I need help. And so then we ask ourselves, what's causing this? So Dr. James, as I see him, he says, so Paul, this is my first observation. You know, you've come to see me, and I, I see what's going on around you, but do you see what's going on within you, Paul? Do you see the passions that are at war within the members of your body, the passions that are in war within you? I suspect, Paul, that the stuff going on around you is because of the stuff going on inside of you. Your soul is sick. Your heart is playing games with you. The wisdom of the world is guiding you. Self-determination or, or self is determining your actions. And I pause and I think to myself, there's another guy in the Bible that wrote something like this. Abstain from the fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. See, what he's saying here is inwardly, we can be sometimes like an armed camp ready for the bugle call that will call us into battle. Internally, we're conflicted. And I think the Bible talks about this, uh, particularly in Romans chapter 7, verses 15 to near the end of the chapter, where Paul talks about the conflict that we have with our old self and the new self that, that is part of our new life. And our desires and passions can be like an armed camp within us, ready at a moment's notice to declare war when something doesn't go our way or when somebody says something that ticks us off or that sends us in a, in a, in a little bit of a tizzy. 
and we don't get what we want or we don't get the thing that we want. And so our passions rage up within us. And he says that in a couple places. He says, he says, is it not the passions that are at war within you that cause fighting and quarreling? And then in verse 3, he says, you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. He's getting at something. He's putting his finger on something that maybe a lot of people can't see about me, but it's inside of me. This word passion is the word where we get hedonism from. And hedonism, as we know, is the pursuit of pleasure. It's the pursuit of pleasure at the expense of others. And these sorts of battles and quarrels come when we put our pleasure against somebody else. We put our needs above somebody else's needs when we insist on our way above every other way. And this is what James is saying is that self-love is the opposite of love for God and love for one another. As Oscar Wilde wrote, fascinating quote, he says, passion is a cruel master. Passion is a cruel master. But here, says Dr. James, let's, let's draw a culture of your soul. I want to take a few tests, and I'll have my secretary call you when the results are ready. So you get the call. Come in, Paul. The tests are ready. And some of you understand this. It's anxious to um, have a call into the office. It's one thing to get test results and have the secretary phone you and say, oh, yeah, your test results are and everything's fine. Don't need to see the doctor. It's another thing when you get the call and you know your test results are in and they say, well, the doctor would like to see you. Could you come in soon and we'll have a talk? And so Dr. James's secretary calls me and says, Paul, the doctor would like to see you. Can you come in as soon as it's possible? I don't have to wait long in his office as he walks in and he says, Paul, I have your results and I want to go over them with you. He says, the first test has revealed some significant levels of unfulfilled desire in you. Verse 2. This unfulfilled desire is no doubt affecting your relationships. Let me be blunt, Paul. This is serious. The reality of such unfulfilled desire can lead to murder. This desire, if you don't get it under control, can result in you taking what you want by force. But murder, Doc? Well, yeah, he says, I, I've heard of this before. He says, there was this king, David. He lusted after another man's wife, took her, impregnated her. Then to avoid detection, he eventually murdered her husband, literally. And then there was this man, Jesus. I was just reading of him a little while ago. And he spoke of how you can murder somebody with your words or by your lack of words. Oh, you may not have physically killed them, but you are treating them as though they are dead. By your silence to them, you are pretending they do not exist. And even suicide can be a form of self-murder because you don't get what you want. See, what James is getting at as he's chatting with me here is that one thing can lead to another and Thoughts can have consequences, or not can, they do have consequences, and out of the heart the mouth speaks, and the seed of desire may bring forth the fruit of death, and James hears literally, or figuratively, or spiritually, or relationally, that could even be murder. So then he says, the second test, Paul, also shows significant levels of coveting, and this is aggravated by not getting what you want. 
And that, in turn, is leading to these fights and quarrels. These higher levels of coveting are often associated with unfulfilled desires. And I think to myself, a test can show that. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We think about coveting. Wanting what another person has, and by implication, wishing that what they had, they didn't have, and rather you had it. What's the result of not getting what we want? If we dwell on it long enough, if we think about what another has and what we don't have, it will come out in our actions and in our words and in behaviors, and we will find ways and words of disagreeing with the person who has something that we covet. And coveting is often the reflection of something even more sinister and even more dangerous, which is idolatry. Looking to somewhere or something else other than God to have my needs met. It often works itself in anger to God. I think James is done. But the doctor says to me, well, there's one more test. In fact, there's two more tests, Paul, that I took. And there's this third test I ordered on a hunch. And it looks for markers, he says, to give evidence of a person's relationship with God. Can I ask you a question, Paul? How is your prayer life? I said, well, it's not really that great at all, Doc. And he says, that's what I hear. Or that's what I understand. That's what I thought. That's why I ordered this text. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. This text, he says, is pretty conclusive. A healthy prayer life and healthy relationships go hand in hand. Wow, I think to myself, could a test really reveal that? How did the doc know that me and God had been on the outs? You see, there's a progression in these texts, or these tests. Desires, coveting, they easily develop into prayerlessness. God is no longer on my spiritual radar. He can't be counted on to give me what I want. He seems to give other people what I want, but he doesn't give me what I want. I no, I no longer believe that God thinks that my needs are important. In fact, why doesn't God just give me what I want without me asking it? You see, we work this out a little bit in our lives. And I wonder, do we sometimes knowingly not pray for something because we know God won't give it to us? Have we really come to believe James 1.17 where he says every good and perfect gift comes down to us from the Father above? Are we sometimes like Eve in the garden thinking, well, God hasn't given me this, but I want it. And then the moments after we get it, we realize it's not what we really needed. So the doctor turns to me and says one more thing. There's one more test result that I want to go over with you, Paul. It's connected with the last test. It also indicates that something is wrong with your praying. I think, really, there's more. Another test related to my praying and my relationship to God. And he lays it on me. He says, as I suspected, these tests confirm my suspicions as to the cause of your fighting and quarreling. You're not receiving anything from God because you're asking wrongly. If you even talk to God at all. 
And you're at war inside, Paul. You're conflicted inside, and your passions are controlling your behaviors. And as that soaks in, Dr. James gently asks me, do you ever think you can be sinful in your praying, Paul? Do you ever find that your prayers are all about you? You see, sometimes we not so much pray to God as we pray upon God. This is really more than I can handle. I'm sure glad Kathy has come to the appointment with me. She's a nurse after all, spiritual nurse, and she can explain the test results more carefully to me. But I know in my heart that the doctor's right. These passions have been getting the better of me in my relationships. I know that I've tried to bring my resentment into my relationship with God, and that hasn't worked. So I say to myself, well, I guess that's the worst of it. So with a shot of courage, I say to Dr. James, what's the diagnosis? It's at times like this when we're about to receive words that can change our lives forever, that anxiety floods into our hearts. Time seems to stand still. It seems like an eternity as we wait for the doctor to finally give us the diagnosis. And so too with James. What does this all mean, Dr. James? What do all these tests together show? And he has one word for me. Adultery. I'm crestfallen. Can't be. It's not what I was expecting at all. That's the last thing I expected to heard from the doctor. He says, I've seen it before, Paul. Friendship with the world. And I feel my heart breaking. Unfaithfulness to my heavenly father. I'm shocked. Impossible. You see, James has put his finger on something, something deep inside our souls that we need to be aware of as those that love God. He's carefully revealed this progression that even people of God can be lured away from their love of God. He's showing how subtle the wisdom of the world can be. Remember, it's natural. It's, it's what everyone around us is thinking, but there's no spiritual reality to it. In fact, it's unspiritual, and James will say that as we get to verse 5 and look at that a little bit. This desiring and this coveting, it's, it's earthly. It has no reference beyond human point. And it can be even demonic as, because James will tell us next week, he says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Often, if not always, spiritual troubles are rooted in theology. And here James is suggesting that the root of the problem is spiritual unfaithfulness. It's spiritual adultery. Walking away from a covenant relationship with our God. And slowly but surely, we've moved God to the margins of our life. We've grown cold toward God. We've doubted his love. We've lost our affections for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're less inclined to think about their needs and more inclined to think about our needs. And again, it traces itself back to thinking wrongly about God. We are in a covenant relationship with God. We are betrothed to God. As the Old Testament often said, he is the husband of Israel. Christ is our 
bridegroom. We are his bride. See, friendship with the world, James is saying, is what leads us out of faithfulness to God into unfaithfulness to God as we play with the world. And that puts us in a hostile relationship with God. What are the telltale signs of spiritual adultery? There's lots of them. But relationships become soured, prayer life becomes stunted, feelings trump discipline, attractions are found outside of God. We spend time, we build companionships, we cultivate friendships, the world is bigger, its attractions way more appealing, the road is broad. Spiritual adultery, although I'm still in love with God, he doesn't seem to love me anymore. My needs are no longer seem to matter to him. This other love is increasingly important to me, and we say, I must have it. I can't live in the same house with God, and enmity begins to build up between us and God as evidenced by our not talking to him anymore. As Matthew 6 says, no one can serve two masters, for either who will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God in money. So James says a little bit earlier, he says, religion that is pure and undefiled is to keep yourself unstained by the world. We sang a song in the first service, um, one of my favorite songs, um, and I can't remember the title of it now. Um, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. That's, that's speaking of the Christian, the proclivity in our heart is, as the flesh still rears its ugly head. It's defeated and, and it will be destroyed finally one day, but it still has vestiges of life. And it still raises its ugly head from time to time to try and lure me away from God. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. See, we come to uh, verse 5 of James chapter 4. And I do want to spend a little bit of time here just because it's a, it's a difficult scripture to wrap our heads around. And I want you to know that there are a lot of different ways to understand verse 5. Um, I'm going to give you the way that I've come to understand it. Um, I don't want to be dogmatic, but I believe it's the right way. But you can go to commentaries and figure out what other uh, individuals say about it. But I think it's important for understanding what James is saying. So the first thing to ask ourselves when we come to verse 5, James says, Do not suppose that is to no purpose that the scripture says. James here, you will, you will search in vain for an Old Testament text that contains what he's about to say. There is none. Uh, the New Testament wasn't written, so he's not thinking about the New Testament. But there is no Old Testament text that says what he says here. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. So he's not talking about a specific text. He's talking about a general direction of certain scriptures that speak about the soul. And so he's wanting us to think about spiritual truth related to that the spirit he caused to live within us yearns jealousy. It's a general statement. Scripture, when it speaks about the spirit that God has put in us, it speaks this way. The second thing is to realize that when you go to the Greek text, it doesn't capitalize proper names. And so whenever you come to the word spirit, for instance, you have to determine by the context whether it's a capital S, meaning the spirit of God, or small s, meaning the spirit of man. And so as we come to this text, the context of James chapter 4 particular, and then James 3 and 5, give us an understanding of should we understand this to be a capital S, the Spirit of God, 
Or should we understand it to be a small s, the spirit of man? I believe that it should be a small s, the spirit of man. Partly because, thirdly, the word that is translated jealousy in verse 5 is only found in the Greek New Testament. It's not found in the Old Testament version of the Greek, or the Old Testament Greek version of the Bible, which is a very reliable translation. It's the LXX or the Septuagint. This word for jealousy is only found in the New Testament. And without exception, it always implies something negative or evil. So it's bitter jealousy, or it's bad jealousy, or it's evil jealousy. It's a word that is used in a couple of contexts to say that we are to put off this kind of envy and put on gentleness and peacefulness. So it's never used in a positive way. There is times in the Old Testament where God is said to be a jealous God. In fact, one of his names is Jealous. But it's a completely different Greek word when it's translated from the Hebrew to the Greek in the Septuagint. Never is it used as the word that it's translated in Greek, the word that James uses here. Now, James is a smart guy. His understanding of the Greek language, is, as, as commentators look at it, he, he knows what he's talking about. So I doubt that James would ever conclude that the Spirit of God, capital S, yearns jealousy, jealously in us. How could it be that God would do something sinful? And so what I think the text is saying here is that the spirit that God has made to dwell in mankind, our human spirit, tends towards jealousy and envy. For example, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, and there's lots, Cain, God speaks to Cain and he says, Cain, be careful. Sin is crouching at the door of your heart. In Genesis 6, chapter 5, God looks on the world and he says, Every thought or every intent of the thoughts of the heart of men and women is always towards evil. In Genesis 8, 21, the intent of man's heart is evil always from his youth. Genesis 26, 14, the Philistines envied Isaac because of his flocks. Genesis 30, verse 1, Rachel envied Leah because of her children. Proverbs 21, 10, the soul of the wicked desires evil. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart, of the, uh, the heart is desperately wicked um, and deceitful. Who can understand it? The scriptures in general say that the spirit of man, not renewed by the spirit of God, always tends towards envy. And this is the battle that James is talking about then here. It's the same battle that we realized when we talked about temptation in chapter 1, that if we're not born again, we will lose to temptation all the time. Because our natural desire is towards sin. But as verse 18 says, we have been born again by the word of God. And now, finally, we can resist temptation. In the same way, without the spirit of God bringing us to birth, our proclivity is towards envy and jealousy. So as I say, the way that I best understand this scripture is this way in verse 5. What do you think the scriptures mean when they say that the spirit God has placed within us is filled with envy? That's what we result, fighting and quarrels. So that's the diagnosis. Adultery. What's the prognosis? Don't give up thinking all is lost. 
because the next verse, I think, is a beautiful verse, and it begins to lead us into a, an understanding of the prognosis. Verse 6, so, Dr. James, is it terminal? No, he says, with considerable compassion and empathy, almost in such a way as he says to me, I too have suffered from that. There is a cure. It's found in the lavishness of the grace of God. And he says these words, he gives more grace. A song pops into my head. My sins, they are many. His mercy is more. The grace of God, how amazing it is. How marvelous, how wonderful. And can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? I've befriended another. I've betrayed God. I've listened to another. My heart has gone after another. My grace is sufficient for thee. The Bible says in one place, if we are faithless, he is faithful. He cannot betray his character. One of the things that I am growing in, there's a few that um, over the last number of couple years in particular I've been growing in. But one of them is also the grace of God. Or more precisely, the God, my Father, who is gracious. I'm more and more blown away by his grace. I'm more and more in awe of his lavish love for me. I'm more and more aware of what I deserved and what I should receive, but what I haven't received and what I have received. Is there hope for such a diagnosis? Absolutely. It's the grace of God. So much more than I deserve. I'm just about ready to go, leave the office, and Dr. James hands me a prescription. I want you to get this filled right away, Paul, he says. It's proven to be the necessary first step into restoring spiritual health. Take it three times a day for a week and then come and see me and I have another prescription for you. <laughs> come back next week. <laughs> as I leave the office, Dr. James says, make an appointment for next week and I'll write you that second prescription. As I leave the office, I have this prescription in my hand and I go home and the first thing that I do is I open up Google and I type it in. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. It's a single word, humble. Humble. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble. Those who trust God. Those who submit to God. Those who look to God. Those who pray to God. Those who don't look to other people, but those who look to God. The proud. Those who are full of themselves. Those who are full of selfish ambition. Those driven by sinful passions and desire and covenants. God gives grace to the humble. We sang that song a little bit earlier, right? Oh, Lord, make me proud. No, oh, Lord, make me humble. Oh, Lord, make me humble. This is the first step back to spiritual health and spiritual wholeness is humility. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to who I will look, and I'm amazed by that. God has made this world, this universe, and everything in it. 
There is so much that could catch God's eye. So much. And what does he say? This is what catches my eye. Contrite and lowly in spirit. But this is the one whom I will look, to him who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. Isn't that amazing? Of all the incredible things that God has made, what does he look for? Humility. Another place Isaiah says, For thus is the Holy One who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. We know that about God, right? His throne is in the heavens above. We, we call it the control tower of the universe. That is where he dwells. But then listen to what Isaiah says. Not only does God dwell there, but he says, but also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit. Wow, humility. That is the first step towards spiritual wholeness. Oh, may God work in us a humility. A humility that in the very first place will respond to Jesus Christ and say, I need you. I need you more than I need air. Will you work in my heart and life so that I know that I am forgiven? But we need humility for the rest of the journey as well. Oh, may God teach us to be humble. Father, we thank you for your word today. May we learn from it. I thank you for the honesty of Dr. James. Uh, sometimes, Father, we, we want to pretend that there's nothing wrong. We want to look the other way. We don't want to look for the things that are really causing the trouble in our lives. And just like in physical cases, Lord, sometimes we need somebody to speak the truth to us gently, so also in spiritual realities. We need a master of the soul to sometimes speak to our souls. Thank you for James. Thank you, though, that James offers us incredible hope. Hope that begins with grace and humility. And as we'll see next week, continues through repentance into this amazing relationship with you. So help us, I pray, to submit to the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen.